The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. This is one show that really champions entrepreneurs and startups, early stage businesses, in fact, all small business, and we're heard right around the world at the same time each week. And we want to thank everybody that listens to us for making us the number one business radio show in the world for entrepreneurs. And this is the, this is the period for entrepreneurs. The next 50 years, never been a better time for entrepreneurship. Over the past couple of weeks, I've been talking about predictions for the year 2030, and the response has been fantastic. You know, there's no doubt in my mind that the institutions of business, education, banking, government, all of those institutions that we're used to that have served us well for the past couple of hundred years are mired in the past, and they cannot possibly cope with the changes that are overtaking us. I think this is going to lead to a revolution in the way that countries are governed, that people are educated, and that business is structured. Now, speaking of change, as you probably know if you listen to this program, I am a huge Elon Musk fan. And a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned this Hyperloop transport concept, which Musk describes as a cross between a Concorde, a rail gun, and an air hockey table. This is a super-fast tubular transport system where you sit in a little capsule, a vacuum-sealed six-person capsule, and it scoots you through this um, electronic field at speeds up to 4,000 miles an hour. Theoretically, it can take passengers from Los Angeles to New York in a bit over half an hour. Sounds incredible, doesn't it? Well, I don't know whether you've seen The Lone Ranger, but uh, incredible, as Tonto would say, not so much. It's going to be a reality. By the end of 2013, a company called ET3 is planning to build and test the Hyperloop system with a three-mile experimental version. The prototypes are already constructed. So Hyperloop transportation could quickly move from science fiction to a feasible reality. Wow. And trials are only a few months away. Now, this show is all about entrepreneurship. I'm a great admirer of people who constantly push the envelope, people who redefine not only the tools that we 
use to do business today, but in fact, the way we approach every business and the way we approach the issues that are challenging us this time. I work with entrepreneurs every day to help them raise funds, to create great management teams, and basically to put in tools in place, the tools that they need to maximise their chance of success. But it's really interesting that over 97% of all entrepreneurs fail. Yet of those who obtain professional advice, get a good board and get mentors, over 80% become successful. So those who don't get advice, 97% fail. Those who do get advice, over 80% are successful. So it comes down to the quality of management and the ability to learn from mistakes, preferably other people's. So today I thought that I would um, touch on nine of the biggest mistakes that entrepreneurs make. Now, don't get me wrong, making mistakes is all a part of being successful. In fact, it's critical in the learning process for all entrepreneurs. But you need to make as few mistakes as possible and make small mistakes. Don't make those big send-you-broke mistakes. So most entrepreneurs, by the time they've got their product to market, have made dozens of mistakes which they've corrected and tested, improved it, changed it again, pivoted. (laughs) But most mistakes are very productive in the long term. Some are not. Now, the first mistake that most entrepreneurs make is that it's so easy to trust your gut rather than testing and validating your product or your idea. You know, we trust our gut, I guess because we don't want to have the disappointment of people telling us that our idea sucks. And every entrepreneur that I meet is absolutely convinced that their product is a game changer. Often based on the praise that's heaped upon them by their friends and family who tell them what a genius they are and they don't want to be critical. But you need to deal with people who will tell it like it is. Potential consumers who will give you a critical appraisal. If it sucks, they'll tell you it sucks and they'll point out the problems. You know, I had quite a good product sent to me today from Norway and their logic is, and how many times have you heard this, if I only get 5% of the potential market, this is a billion-dollar business. Sounds easy, but getting one person in 20 to buy anything is a Herculean task. It's just not possible. The second mistake entrepreneurs make is not getting the business to market fast enough. I've got entrepreneurs who come to me have been working on projects for years, trying to get it exactly right and adding new bells and whistles as they go. And they never, ever get to the finish line. Or by the time they do, somebody else has brought out a better mousetrap. You've got to launch your product as soon as possible. It's got to be unexpected and it's got to be strategic in order for you to be successful. You know, what you have to do is develop that primary product, release it, get the reaction to it, and then start to add bells and whistles. Don't overbuild it initially because features, 
on their own do not make startups successful. The third mistake entrepreneurs make is not knowing when to change the business model and to pivot. Once you release your product, you'll get a heap of feedback. Everybody will give you advice, and that's going to be invaluable to your future success. You've got to listen to it. For example, Groupon was started in 2008 as a side project at The Point, which was focused, as you probably know, on socially good campaigns. However, Andrew Mason quickly found that the desire amongst the public for daily deals on, you know, things like Brazilian waxes and renting a monkey for a month greatly outweighed their desire to fix the local park or build a kindergarten. And Groupon then became their main business. That is a major pivot you have to be prepared to do. The fourth mistake that entrepreneurs make is to either take too much advice from everybody and their dog or not to take any. So if you start to take on board all of the feedback that everybody gives you, you end up going nowhere. You get so confused, you start going off on tangents everywhere, you're not going to do it. On the other hand, if you don't listen to anybody, the same thing happens. You'll go nowhere. So you need to build a board or obtain mentors that have heaps of experience in the spe- in specific areas of your business. You're not going to find everybody who knows everything about your business, but you will find people who are experts in various sectors. I've often spoken on this program about trusted mentors that I have had for 30 years or more, and they've seldom, as a group, steered me in the wrong direction. Now, the fifth mistake that entrepreneurs make is believing that their great idea is going to sell itself. This is a great idea. Once people hear about it, they'll all flock to me. That's absolute bullshit. No matter how good your idea is, it ain't going to happen. You've got to create a comprehensive marketing strategy, which you developed after considering both traditional and online marketing vehicles. Got to implement it diligently and measure the return on investment for each vehicle that you use. You've got to focus on developing word of mouth and referral business because that's what drives short-term success and increases your return on investment. Don't forget that you can have the best product in the world, but without sales, you are screwed. Now, the sixth mistake that entrepreneurs make is not considering the customer first in any business. Doesn't matter what the hell your business is. The customer is infinitely more important than your product or any member of your team. The customer is the only thing that counts. So in order to get a successful product to market, you've got to be You've got to consult with potential customers extensively. Find out exactly what they want, what they like about your product, what they don't like, how they think it's going to solve their issues. Because don't forget, a a product only becomes a business if it solves somebody's challenges. And then once you've got it into the market, you've got to consult with your customers in order to constantly improve that product or your or service if that's what it is 
And you also gain, gain really critical intelligence on what your competitors might be doing. Now, the seventh mistake that entrepreneurs make is not ensuring they've got sufficient funding. And this is bloody hard part, of course, but it means having great documentation, an investor strategy, not a business plan, an investor strategy, because don't forget, investors care about them. They don't give a rat's ass about you. They care about them. It's a risk-reward ratio for them. They don't care whether they invest in a new widget or an app or medical equipment or what the hell they invest in. It's the risk-reward ratio that they're interested in. You know, I would read some documents the other day that said only six entrepreneurs in a 1,000 get sufficiently funded to implement their product. So it's absolutely critical to nail down your funding strategy before you get into the market. Lack of funding will kill a business quicker than anything else. The eighth mistake that entrepreneurs make is failing to network extensively. You have to be out there talking to industry experts and potential customers all the time. I've heard, you've probably heard the old adage. You know, I've been told a million times. It's not what you know, it's who you know. Well, to a large degree, that is bloody true. So I reckon in my life, it's networking that's enabled me to achieve probably 80% of what I've been able to do in my life. And the great thing about networking is you get to meet some fantastic people. And that's cool. The final mistake that entrepreneurs make is not hiring the right people. Too many entrepreneurs hire people that are friends and that agree with them and are not objective. So it's your people that will make or break your business. You need to have the best possible people around you. There are two great sayings that always stick in my head. The first is you should always hire people smarter than you. People that know more than you do, at least about a specific area of your business. If you don't, you can only go backwards. Can't go forwards if they're dumber than you are. And if you think you can hire a friend and somehow they'll change to be the person that you need, then think again. Big companies might have the luxury of being able to train people over a period of time, but small businesses and startups don't have that luxury. You have to get the right people in the right jobs immediately. So that's it. There's a few tips for you if you're an entrepreneur. Now, don't forget that this, this program, it's all about you, the entrepreneur or the small business person that's looking for tips on how to be more successful. This is what we are here for. This whole show is dedicated to assisting entrepreneurs. So if you've got a question or you want somebody particular interviewed on air, don't hesitate to email me at bob at bobpritchard.com and we will answer you on air or email you directly. You're listening to the number one radio show in the world for entrepreneurs, the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. And audiences are great right across the United States, but we also have listeners right throughout the world. Our best international markets, incidentally, are Germany, United Kingdom, Australia and Vietnam. For listeners, no matter where you are in the world, we do thank you for listening. Now, my guest today is Dr. Linda Maddox, a pocket dynamo, this bird is, Professor of Marketing and Advertising at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Dr. Maddox was recently recognized by her peers and awarded the prestigious American Advertising Federation Distinguished 
Advertising Educator Award. Boy, that's a mouthful. I happen to be there in Phoenix when she got the award. And she's also my son Hunter's marketing professor. Dr. Mannix is revered by her students. They all love her. And I know we'll have a very enthusiastic listening audience right now at George Washington University. So I want to thank all you guys for tuning into the program and go the Colonials. This is Bob Pritchard, and I'll be back in just a moment with Linda Maddox. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. And this is the segment where we interview people that have achieved extraordinary things, people that are making a real difference in our society. And I think it um, can be argued that no one makes a bigger difference than a professor at a prestigious university who contributes probably more than anyone else to the business lives of tomorrow's leaders. They they form the thoughts and the learning patterns of tomorrow's leaders, so they're critically important in our society. Now, my son Hunter, who I've spoken about often, attends George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and he's been extremely fortunate to have this little pocket dynamo as his marketing professor. I've had the pleasure of getting to know Dr. Maddox and her husband, Darshan, and to witness the extraordinary work that she does with her students, not only at GW, but elsewhere. In addition to lecturing at GW, Professor Maddox also lectures in Thailand and in Sweden. And as a marketer myself, I appreciate and I am in awe of her skills and her talent in communicating with these kids and the relationships she's got with these kids is fantastic. Her areas of expertise are in advertising, marketing communications, internet marketing and advertising, and consumer behaviour, to name just a few. Dr Maddox has published is published in numerous professional and scholarly journals and has appeared on all of the major 
television networks. She coached the GW team in the National Student Ad Competition, where they won the New York region and came in fifth in the national final in Phoenix against some extraordinary competition. Dr Maddox serves on the Academic Committee of the American Advertising Federation. She's also a member of the American Marketing Association and the American Academy of Advertising. She was recently recognised by her peers and awarded the prestigious American Advertising Federation Distinguished Advertising Educator Award. Now, more important than all of that, which is pretty impressive, Professor Maddox is not all about academia. She and her husband are fun people. We had a great night out in Phoenix not that long ago, and uh, they're people who live life to the fullest and spend their lives giving back. Now, that's the mark, in my view, of a person that's really making a difference to the well-being of this planet. There's too few of them. Dr. Maddox, welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. It's great to speak to you again. Thanks, Bob, and thanks for that nice introduction. Actually, if you don't mind, to hell with the Dr. Maddox stuff. Um, I think I know you well enough to call you Linda. Is that okay? Yes, please do. One of the things that really impressed me about the National Student Advertising Competition, with all the major colleges in the US competing, is just how seriously the faculties and and the students took the competition and the amount of work that was involved in preparing for it. I mean... I was blown away when I when I saw the presentations, um, and I literally tried to ring Hunter every day and every night for a couple of months and could never get him because he was always working on the competition. <laughs> um, it's outside the normal curriculum, so it adds not only to their hours but also to their stress levels. How much work really does go into this competition when you look at it in total? Well, I would say that they start out, it's a 15-week semester, and in the first two weeks, they might put in 20 hours a week, and from then on, they're upwards of 40 to 60 hours a week sometimes working on this. And when they're not working on it, they're thinking about it, and they tell me they even dream about it. (laughs) Jeez. Totally all-consuming process where the students not only work on the project all the time, but they um, spend time with their teammates and they are constantly thinking about new ideas and ways to handle the problem. Yeah, so the standard of the winning campaigns was as good as many campaigns that I've sat through delivered by professional agencies over the years. Is that a result of what they learn in their normal curriculum or do they sort of learn this as they go and they pick up this... Um, additional information from just from study, just from working on it? I would say it's a combination. They, um, before they enter the class, they have to have taken a number of prerequisites. So they all have a basic knowledge of marketing and advertising. Sure. But they also have to go through three interviews with me and my teaching assistants before they can even be in the class. And there I'm looking for a particular type of drive and motivation that will make a good team. And one of the things that I talk to them about is, are they ready to learn by doing? And they have to, in a way, shift from being regular undergraduate students to being professionals who learn on the job. And so 
a lot of their learning comes from trial and error. They try something, they come to me, as they say, I never like anything the first time. <laughs> and so I send them back to work on it again and again and again. And they become very facile at doing this. And I think that probably the great thing about the course is that they go from being students to professionals in one semester. Yeah, it's a, uh, one other question. Well, I want to get off this, but one other question. Um, I looked at a number of the teams that were in the final, and uh, and particularly the GW team, of course, and there didn't seem to be any egos. And in agencies, there's always egos. And uh, how do you... Is that your communication skills that weeds out egos before it starts, or do they just naturally get it belted out of them through this process? <laughs> I have to tell you, some of it's the luck of the draw. Yeah. Um, but also, it's part of the interview process, and that's something that I talk to them about before they ever join the class. But the difference between a team that wins the business and one that doesn't yeah. is being able to respect one another. And I, I talk a lot about that through the course. But I have to tell you that there are years and there are teams where the egos get in the way. The team that you're Sun Hunter experienced and the one you saw just happened to be one of the great teams that certainly they had egos because otherwise they wouldn't take a course like this, I sure, think. Sure. But they knew how to control them and they learned how to use their egos to motivate them to do better. And then do you also um, groom them in presentation skills? Because their presentations. Oh, absolutely. Right. I drill them into doing great <laughs> presentations. Um, um, again, it's something that a lot of the people that take this type of course seem to gravitate to, but they, everybody can use perfecting on presentation skills. And so they practice. Uh, I can't tell you how many hours they practice doing great presentations and changing wording and scripting. And they learn everything from how to do a great presentation, but even more how to manage large amounts of information and to make it sticky, which is a word that yep, sure. I don't think they'll ever forget because yeah. <laughs> I, I use it all the time with them. Make the information sticky, and that's something that comes from doing it over and over and over again. And I, if I had to say that's one of the most important things they learn about doing great presentations is that they don't happen um, the first time around. They take a lot of practice and a lot of perfection and a lot of attention to detail. How does a five-foot-nothing lady become a tough taskmaster? <laughs> five foot master? two, I might add. Five foot two. How do you become such a tough taskmaster? <laughs> um, you know, I think it's because I like doing it. Yeah. And um, it, it makes education fun. Um, yeah. If I taught the same thing year after year, semester after semester, I mean, I might as well be doing it as a videotaped lecture, which is not what I want to be. And so I do, I deal with different students and different abilities and different problems and different businesses. And that's what keeps the whole thing fun for me. And so I don't really see it as a taskmaster. I see it as something that allows me to really see the results of my efforts. Yeah. Now, I went to a presentation a couple of weeks ago by um, Salim Ismail from Singularity University, who I'm a great fan of, um, who said that we are really actually, while it seems to us that 
um, technology is just changing at such a frenetic pace. He said that he believes that we're less than 1% into the um, technological revolution, or technology revolution, I guess it should be, and that while the rate of change to date has been really extraordinary, we'd expect this change to be exponential. And his view was that all the institutions that we have now, such as governments, healthcare, corporations, educations, etc., they're all anchored in last century and cannot possibly cope with this change. Um, what do you think about that? Do you think we can we can continue to keep up with this frenetic change? Uh, I don't think that all institutions will keep up with it, and I do think that we're struggling. I mean, I can tell you that it's something that is discussed constantly at my university about how to take advantage of the technological revolution and how to use technology to our best ability and to make it a complement to um, an in-person education as opposed to a substitute. Yeah. I, I, I've seen a number of... I belong to this group in, in Los Angeles called Metal, which every mm-hmm. week reviews all the new things that are happening and whatever, and uh, some of the changes that are not only just incremental changes tech, technology-wise, but are groundbreaking, total disruption of, of what we're doing now. Um, and yet the, there's a time lag. The people that are the nerds in society probably got a time lag of a year, where most of the population's probably got a time lag of, in my case, about 50 years. Um, how, how can we possibly keep up I, I mean, with just just the collection of information and, and big data and how big data is used, for example? How can universities or anyone else keep up with that change? I think that the only way to keep up with it is to keep learning and to keep studying and to keep uh, abreast of everything and also to recognize what your audience is capable of digesting. Because a lot of times we assume that just because the technology exists, that everybody out there is using it and thinking about it in the same way. And I don't necessarily think that's true, and I've learned that by working with students, as a matter of fact. You think that, you know, you always hear that they're the native generation and they're so facile with technology and so forth. But a lot of times they use particular pieces of technology, and they use it very naturally, and they use it just as they do their native language. But that doesn't mean that they're strategists in it. That doesn't mean that they know how to use it to the fullest either. So I think it's important to recognize that just because the technology is there doesn't mean that everybody embraces all of it and that it will become something that takes over um, a traditional means of learning. It can be used as a complement to, and I I keep saying that because I really believe that technology has to be a complement to learning and not a substitute for it. I interviewed a lady on the show um, recently who is the leading person on the planet in avatars, and she said that we're only five minutes away, not very far away, maybe five years away, from having robots, if you want to call them that, that look like people, feel like people, touch like people, talk like people, but are much, much smarter than people. What do we do then? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> I, I mean, if that's true, I guess we're in trouble. But I have to imagine that 
there will be parts of humanity that can't be duplicated. And I think that um, one of the things that about education that excites me that I think perhaps won't be duplicated by that is motivation and inspiration and interaction and touching, connecting emotionally with students, which will then allow them to uh, connect emotionally with their clients, whoever they may be. And they may be patients, uh, you know, for doctors, sure. or they may be business people or whatever. But that sort of uh, motivation and inspiration is something that I think will always need the human touch. And I think that that's where one-on-one education will remain important. Okay. This is, okay. This is, now, here's a real loaded one. Um, Mm-hmm. <laughs> Salim predicted that in 20 years' time, 85 to 90% of all universities on this planet will cease to exist and that students, no matter where they are in the world, will be able to take online courses and do online degrees from whatever university that happens to be in existence without attending any classes, providing they can pass whatever the types of tests are. Now, one would imagine that they would have to be different types of exams than we do now. But um, what what are your thoughts on that? Are you going to become extinct? Are you like a dinosaur? (laughs) Well, I hope not. (laughs) You'd be a tiny little dinosaur if you were. (laughs) That's right. Not so big. (laughs) I, I do think that the number of universities will diminish. And I think that a lot of them will become extinct. And I think that certain segments of education will also um, become more um, mechanized, if that's a, the, you know, if right. you can apply that to technology. Yeah. That especially courses where the real goal is to pump knowledge into people, like to learn the basics. Right. And I think that there will become master educators, people that are very good at doing lectures and conveying information that is sticky to large numbers of people. And I think you'll be able to get that online. And I think everybody will have access to some of the most gifted educators from that perspective. Right. But where I think university, other types of universities will take over is in the one-on-one more tutorial type coaching. I think coaches will become uh, synonymous with professors. So professors you sort of think of, even the word sounds like you stand up there and profess something. Whereas I think the future of education for a lot of students and a lot of smaller universities will be in becoming um, motivational coaches, making students um, be able to synthesize all that information that they learn and to motivate them and also to give them confidence. I find that that's a big part of my job is giving people confidence. And it's always amazing to me to watch the transformation in my students from the beginning of the semester to the end. And, and it's not only in how much information they learn, but how capable they are at conveying it and using it and how comfortable they feel and how confident they are going out into the world and being members of working with children and learners. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, a slightly different question. Is university education about 
teaching people stuff or is it about teaching people to learn? I think it's a combination. And um, one of the things that's disturbed me a little bit about education in recent years is there's been a big, big push towards measuring outcomes of learning. And those outcomes of learning often tend to be measured on things like standardized tests. And uh, do students learn um, X, Y, and Z terminology and so forth? And I think that is important. I mean, I'm I'm a big believer that you have to know the basics. But I also think that a lot of times we don't have the capability and haven't come up with a way to measure the real outcome of learning, which is the ability to go out in the world and make a difference in whatever business or profession that you happen to go into. Yeah. And so, I, yeah, I really think that we need to somehow become better at doing that and better at measuring those sorts of outcomes. And maybe something like this ad competition, you know, it's, it's uh, a way to measure. Um, it was pretty clear to everybody in the room that these students were prepared to go out in the world and to be professionals. Oh, and absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, here's another loaded one. <laughs> you have a lot of those today. <laughs> um, I spoke at Stockholm University um, to an MBA class not that long ago, and we had a quite an extensive question and ask answer period afterwards. And uh, I really enjoy question and answer periods, but of course I haven't been an academic, so I told them real life stories about what happened when you get out there in the real world. And in the real world, it's war. You win or somebody else wins. I mean, you know, it's it's bloody tough out there and it's really hard to mm-hmm. be successful. It's a real cut and thrust um, world of business and marketing. And the feedback that I got from the intent- attendees was, God, all the information you're giving me is really totally the opposite or totally different than what our professors tell us. And then, so we had a discussion about this with the um, head of business at at Stockholm, and he said, you know, well, none of us have actually been out there. We've always been academics. So we're teaching things that, you know, we really haven't experienced. I've never been out there toe-to-toe with a business leader or whatever. How big an issue is that in academia in general and marketing and business in particular? I think that it's, um, it is a problem and I also hear that um, and as you know I teach in Sweden and I've heard it there and I've heard it in the US and I've heard it in other countries as well and I think that one of the reasons is that um, the this sort of teaching is passed on and there's a feeling that students need to learn theory and I'm a believer students do need to learn theory but they also then need to learn how to marry the theory with the practice and so it's my opinion that people who teach in the areas like business or any sort of area where there's an actual practice or clinical sort of involvement, that you have to have somebody that also has some kind of uh, contact with the real world. Yeah. And that doesn't always have to mean that they worked for 25 years in big business. Yeah, that's it may mean too. that, yeah, <laughs> it may mean that they keep abreast by doing consulting. Yeah. 
and it may mean that they do real-world projects with industry, or that in some way, maybe it's that they keep in contact with their students. Right. I mean, for instance, I just spoke with several of the students from this class who are out working, right. and I asked them, so what's, what's the difference? What, what do you see that's different now that you're working than uh, you saw in the classroom? And um, several of them said to me, well, you know, it's a it's sort of um, a issue of reality that you learn in the real world. Sometimes the right way of doing something isn't going to work because your client doesn't understand the right way. Yeah. So you have to be adaptable and you have to recognize that you... You have to be an educator as well as a fixer. And uh, this one particular student said, I spend most of my day trying to get my client to understand what he should do and fixing the things that he didn't do right in the first place. And he said, you have to learn how to do that in a way that doesn't offend the client and gets the business done. And so there's a real dose of reality that, that isn't taught in the classroom sometimes. And I don't know that it necessarily should be. Um, that's the kind of thing you do learn on the job. But the job of educators is to teach students, I guess, the right way to do something. And that should be a combination of theory and real world. I think one of the things that students um, would probably notice the most is that um, at university they can be creative and it's appreciated. In, in real life business, the biggest inhibitor to innovation and change is the company itself and the structures that it put in, puts in place. If you take any great idea into a big company, it will fail. doesn't matter what it is or what the company is, simply because they're made that way. And um, so I think that would be a big difference. And as a matter of fact, it's as if you were listening in on my conversation with my student yesterday who just started working in a major New York media firm. And those are essentially the words he used. He said, I really have to watch myself that I'm not constantly coming up with the next great creative idea because I know it won't be accepted. And he's learned that after working a month in the business. Yeah, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, last question, and we've got to make it fairly brief, unfortunately, and it's a, it's a complicated question. Um, I always argue, and I've argued for a long time, and it's, it's sort of what I've built my career on, really. I've said the four things that are not the least bit important in marketing today are product, price, brand awareness, and satisfied customers. And they seem to be the pillars when I go and speak to an audience. 87% or 90% of people put up their hand and say they're the most important things in communication of your product, of your business today. And I argue that if you do those things, you'll go broke. There's much more important things um, to the customer than that. How would you, what's your characterization of, of that statement of mine? Well, I would say that you have to look at each of those components in their entirety. Um, to say that, for instance, that because you have a great product, you're going to succeed or because people know about your brand, 
you're going to succeed or because consumers are satisfied, you're going to succeed. In fact, those things are important, but finding, um, one of the things I try to teach my students and when I do consulting projects, I try to talk to the clients about is really finding the deeper level of customer satisfaction. What are the needs and wants that your product is satisfying? And a lot of people do bad research. They ask things like, um, which of the following is most important to you? Price, product, you know, whatever. And consumers will say, oh, the price is. But in fact, they're not asking the right questions. And that's, I guess, a subject for a completely other interview sometimes. But I think um, asking the right questions in research and fashioning your marketing plan around key insights as opposed to sort of saying, yeah. you know, the product is most important or the price is most important is, is what it's really all about. It's finding the motivation and the satisfaction levels and the things that make the consumer really excited about what you're offering or what you're doing. Well, I think on that note, we might agree. <laughs> so, <laughs> Professor, I think so. <laughs> Professor, doctor. Linda Maddox, Professor of Marketing at George Washington University. It's great to speak with you, and thanks for being on the program. Um, I look forward to catching up with you and Darshan again in the very near future. And this is Bob Pritchard. Yes, I do too. (laughs) Thank you. This is Bob Pritchard, and you're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, and I'll be back with you in just a moment. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, No Bullshit Business Show. Coming to you this week, as we do every week, from Los Angeles, the City of Angels. For the past few days, I've been in Singapore, which, if you haven't been there, is a fantastic city, but is extremely hot and humid, and really does make you appreciate the magnificent weather in LA. Now, this is a segment of the show where we bring you emails from listeners all around the world. It's incredible that despite the different cultures, all of the emails are applicable to any business anywhere. And that's terrific. I'm off to Mumbai uh, to give a presentation in a couple of weeks, and I will guarantee you that their questions will be exactly the same as those I got last week. So the First email today comes from Graham Bloggett of Pennsylvania. Graham's email reads, We constantly hear about marketing messages that go viral. Can you explain what the key is to creating a viral campaign? Graham, when you're preparing any marketing campaign, it needs to be highly researched and really well thought through in order for it to work. And creating a great viral campaign is no different. It doesn't just happen. It has to be planned. Now, my son, Hunter, who, as I've mentioned a couple of times, is a senior at George Washington University. He brought to my attention this week a campaign called 
dumb ways to die. And this is a public service announcement campaign by Metro Trains in Melbourne, Australia, that was designed to promote rail safety. The video, you've got to go and look at it. So look up Dumb Ways to Die. It is brilliant. The video is a black comedy and features a variety of really cute characters who all kill themselves in increasingly idiotic ways. And it culminates in three characters being killed by trains due to their unsafe behaviour. Now, the focus of Dumb Ways to Die... I just love the name, Dumb Ways to Die, is a song which was released on iTunes and within two weeks of release, it was the sixth most popular song globally ahead of artists like Rihanna. Let me just play you just a fraction of this song. I love it. I find myself in the shower singing Dumb Ways to Die. (laughs) I just think it's fantastic. Now, within two weeks, 65 cover versions had been uploaded onto YouTube. 65 cover versions. Dumb Ways to Die picked up two Grand Prix awards at the Cannes International Festival of Creativity. And within 48 hours of release, it had attracted 2.5 million views on YouTube. In 72 hours, 4.7 million views and has now attracted not, uh, not only 60 million views and 700 global media stories, but has now spawned 85 parodies. <laughs> the song's being played by music stations. There's a karaoke version of the song. There's a smartphone game. There's a children's book. Now, this is truly great viral marketing. They took a subject that is as boring as batshit, rail safety, and they made it fun. Yet they still got the message across. The result is being, the result being a 30% reduction in near-miss train accidents. Very clever. Very creative. And Graham, if there's ever a great example of effective viral marketing, I reckon Dumb Ways to Die is perfect. So do yourself a favour. Go on and have a look at The video is absolutely fantastic. It is. I love it. Graham, a copy of Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, How to Blitz Your Competition, which is my latest book, is on its way to you, and I'm sure that it'll be of great benefit to you and your business. Next email comes from Melissa Morgan from London, England. Melissa's email says, Bob, I love your show. I get so much great information from it. You've spoken a lot on your program about business growth and social media. How is the best way to maximize results from social media if you're a beginner? Dear Melissa, Well, word of mouth marketing is by far the most successful way to build a business, sustain a business and reduce costs. No question. But word of mouth marketing has just received a a technological makeover and that makeover is called social media. 
Hands down, it is the most powerful tool that any business owner can use to engage customers and to drive business growth. There's nothing like it. Now, Staples recently, I think I mentioned this last week, that Staples recently released the results of its small business and social media study where it gave businesses the choice of a Facebook page, a Super Bowl ad, or a celebrity endorsement. 41% chose Facebook. And of small businesses who use social media and track their ROI, 76% of those businesses say they received positive return on their social media efforts. That is a phenomenal effort because when I ask companies about their success rate with traditional media, they reckon it's 20% or less. We're talking about social media, 76%. The word of mouth today consists of shares and likes and retweets. Small business cannot afford to ignore social media. It drives traffic, traffic, traffic growth and revenue. So my first tip is to start small. You know, run a poll on your website or ask your customers and find out where the hell they are. You know, they might be on Facebook, Pinterest, LinkedIn, Twitter, perhaps even YouTube. Then pick one, any one of these, and focus on it until you've mastered it. And once that's working for you, then think about going to another platform. Melissa, it would certainly help me if I knew what your target demographic was um, because while the number of people using social media is expanding across all demographics, there's no question that it's, um, it's second nature to the millennials. So if that's your target market, take advantage of their innate skill set because you, know, you don't have to educate anybody. It's there. So if you're one of the older generation, like me, put one of your younger employees in charge of the social media program. Or if you're a business working from home, then have one of your kids do it. Put them in charge of your social media program. But empower them to get the job done, but keep a casual eye on what does get done. Like any form of marketing, you've got to keep track of the results and the return on investment, both in terms of time and also money. Because you can spend a hell of a lot of time on social media and that's money too. Time is money. Now, the common metrics include likes, shares, and followers. But remember, if you're using social media for marketing, every social interaction should be making you money. And if you're not getting results by increasing revenue, it means that you're not effectively engaging your audience and it's time to reassess your methods and try a new approach. Remember, Social media is not like a 24-hour broadcast channel. So don't go and blast constant news and updates about your business. At least 80% of the 
of your tweets or posts should be about your audience. The other 20% about your business. But you must focus on content that is of benefit to your customers to the extent that they want to share it. You've got to get your audience involved. So think about ebooks, videos, or contents, contests. You must provide content that creates positive word of mouth online. Graham, if it, so, Melissa, I hope that helps you answer your question. As we do for everyone whose emails read on air, tomorrow we will send you a copy of Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, How to Blitz Your Competition, which is my latest best-selling book. If you're a regular listener to the show and are benefiting from the advice that my guests and I give you each week, please tell your friends to listen. Go to my website at bobpritchard.com and subscribe to my monthly newsletter. Send in your questions. Email me at bobpritchard.com and follow me on Twitter, Facebook and Google+. I'm going to go out with some music today. I just love this. Dumb Ways to Die. So I hope you enjoyed the show. We're pleased to have been bringing you this show since 2011. It's a heap of fun and we hope that you enjoy it. Thanks for listening to the Bob Pritchard No Bullshit Business Radio Show for Entrepreneurs. And remember, if you're serious about being successful, this is the place to come every week at the same time. This is Bob Pritchard, and I hope you have a great week. Here's a few more bars of dumb ways to die. That's it for me, Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.